Good day, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Merged Worlds, our Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream thing. <laughs> you know, you'd think after 99 episodes, I'd have a cemented down an actual way of describing this thing by now, but I feel like I stumble over it just as much now as I did back on episode one. So, uh, there's that. But thank you for coming back by another episode. Uh, episode 99. That's a, that's a pretty big number right there, huh? Pretty excited about that. Uh, next week, or well, the next week, two weeks from today, will be episode 100. <coughs> and I have a couple things prepared for that. Uh, more info incoming. Uh, but it will be a uh, slightly longer than normal episode. I know we've been running around an hour to hour and a half on episodes lately. Next week may run a little bit longer than that because of, you know, things and stuff. But welcome, everyone. I'm glad to see everyone's here. Who all? We've got uh, Silesius is here. Miss Ashley. Hello, Miss Ashley. BMT. Mr. Cherry. Good day, sir. I will do so. Thank you. Hello, Teresa, who is reading, listening through the series and is up to episode 74. Very cool. And uh, let's see. Uh, Silesius is on episode five. Okay, so he's got a, he's uh, just new into it. That's awesome. Uh, hello, Bacon Drift. There's MT again. Hello. Two weeks shorter, three years. Excellent. That's awesome. Wow. That's a long time. And hello, Mr. Jim. Uh, and of course, thank you to everybody out there who was also uh, listening to this via iTunes or Spotify or any of the other audio podcast uh, locations that you can get Merged Worlds. Thank you very much uh, for listening here, there, or wherever. I appreciate that you've given me a moment of your time. So, let's see. So, we have been doing a, uh, the story uh, of the uh, Maeve and artists Ran, Kip, and Petal. Uh, and we're continuing with that today. We'll do another brief overview of where we were, and then jump right into the story today. So, um, <clears throat> as we know, the five children that I just mentioned, or they're, I guess young adults at this point, I should say, they are uh, <clears throat> currently hanging out with a uh, s small community who lives just off the beach, uh, led by a minotaur named Broda. <clears throat> Broda and his people are... Uh, not all Minotaurs, there are some humans and other races in there, but my majority are uh, Minotaur. And uh, they are a community of pacifists. They don't like fighting, no combat. Although they previously uh, were, obviously, uh, warriors and such, they have set down their weapons for a life of peace. <clears throat> Our friend's ship sank and they ended up in this community. And they are now in an attempt to get back those things that they valued, such as weapons, artifacts, armor, things of that nature, which they have learned are currently in the possession of a pirate that goes by the name Redbeard, who uh, is the, I guess you'd say, leader, mayor, king of a community named um, Dagger Bay. Uh, the keep in Dagger's Bay is nigh impenetrable, or so some would have you believe. Uh, it is on the edge of a cliff, and the way that the cliffs work, uh, the I want to describe this because it's going to be important later. Uh, the cliff itself uh, has a ch kind of a chunk out of it with the the keep itself. So the keep is almost like on an island of this cliff. So if you were looking at the front of this keep, 
Behind it would be a cliff that into the sides that goes straight down very, very, very far. But to the sides of the keep, pieces of that cliff have, got, have fallen away. So really there's only one section of the keep that's accessible by land. The sides and back of it are all cliff. And so they learned that Quintius, their magical artifact scepter, and m many of their uh, possessions are inside of that keep, and they need to get them back. Uh, while they've yet to meet Blackbeard, or Redbeard, who's the captain uh, and leader of this area, they did speak with his mage, a mage named Selenian. And Selenian, who uh, was a sea mage, is, uh, which on Merged Worlds, mages can choose specific types of magical paths. And a sea mage is one who lives on or near the oceans or seas and... Uh, his, ma his or her magic really complements that type of li lifestyle. A lot of spells that would benefit someone living on the seas. Um, and they learned from Quintius, uh, the artifact, who is able to project an image of itself to artists, that uh, the wizard was, mage, was trying to break down its defenses to gain access, and that he was unnaturally powerful, uh, was a phrase that was used, which is... Uh, not good. It means he seems to be more powerful than he should be, as well as uh, he may have been responsible for the sinking of their ship. Uh, he didn't say they were, Quintius. Quintius said he may be. So that's something that they're uh, concerned with. So what they've discovered is that there's the back of the keep, again, cliff side. The bottom of that little bay area where the keep is, there is uh, very high and strong currents and waves, rocks sticking up out of it. So trying to get into it from a boat, uh, you just get smashed against rocks and so on and so forth. And very difficult to swim the same way because of the strong currents and such. So they've determined that they were going to try to uh, get in that back of that area uh, via surfboards, which is something that Broda and his community are quite proficient with. They discovered that there were some small entrances on the back side of the cliffs, although they are believed to be impossible to get to because you'd have to get through that problem of the bay and then find a way to climb up this incredibly steep, wet, mildewy type kind of wall, get to one of these cave entrances that, to their understanding, are barred. So they're like, okay, I like bars in them, I should say. So... Well, the end of that, when we left off, Broda agreed to help kind of show them the basics enough of surfing to get in there. Now, I want to clarify that they will not be surfing their way into this bay, standing up, hanging ten kind of stuff. That's not the intention here. The, uh, the, they're just not going to be proficient fast enough to be able to do that. The goal is for them to be able to lay on the boards and maneuver their way and how to handle the waves enough that they can paddleboard in that way on their stomachs and such. Um, because they're going to want to take gear with them. They're going to try to sneak into this keep. They're going to want to be armed. Now, none of them really have armor, per se. So they're not going to, um, you know, try to get on a surfboard with armor because they're just going to sink. Uh, most, Almost all their armor is either in the keep or lost in the sea as it is. Uh, but they are going to have at least you know some weapons and some gear to get inside of there. Um, 
a lot of that primarily going to be rope. They're going to need rope. So um, they've decided they're going to try to master this surfing enough to get in there. They can learn a bit of surfing on the way. Good, because it may still be beneficial. Maybe they're trying to escape, things of that nature. But the goal is really to be able to just stay on and handle the, the board and the waves. A question from Ashley says, Are mages able to sense proximity of magical items? They are not. Not without specifically casting a detect magic spell. They can't just naturally sense them. Usually, I should say. That doesn't mean that they may not be able to see or feel the signs of something excessively powerful, right? Like, uh, they, they might know the signs as well or for just being around certain spells like wards and things of that nature that they might you know, feel that kind of tingle like, hey, wait, mm, something feels out of place. I can sense something in the air here. But as for just like a magical item, maybe hidden under the stairs or behind a bookshelf, they, they would have no way of sensing that unless they were actually using some type of spell to discover that item. Um, and that would be 99% accurate. Uh, there is always that 1% situation where someone's had a strong magic item for a long time and has built some type of bond with it that they could kind of sense its direction just from the way that it feels. But that's, again, a very one-off situation. And for that, you're looking more along the lines of an actual artifact versus a magical item. The difference between a magical item and an artifact. It's very in, uh, It's very common for people to incorrectly believe that artifacts means they can talk to you. That is not correct. Um, although most intelligent magic items are going to be artifacts, that doesn't mean they all are intelligent. Artifact very often is going to be determined by the power level of such an item or the rarity. Artifacts, very commonly, there's only one of. Or it's like a set of something, like the Visani stones from way back in Merge Worlds past. There were a certain amount of stones, but there's only one of each stone kind of thing. You know, or a special sword of something. Like you could find a, uh, for example, a magical longsword plus five, or a, a sword of acid, or a sword of flame. But you know, you find goldworthy sword of the flame. That's a, that's a specific name, and there's reasons why it exists. It may be more powerful than the average one. It may have an additional ability than a normal sword of flame would. Um, but an artifact is going to be very much based on the amount of power it has and or its rarity. Um, and you can even add in how it's made there as well. Um, some artifacts may become that status only because they become the last one, right? There were originally 100 of them, and 10,000 years later, there's only one left. Again, we're back to the rarity situation. There's only one left, so it's considered an artifact, even though it may not be overly powerful. Um, but rarely will you find a non-artifact that is intelligent. Um, and no two, this is my understanding, and at least, again, I've never played it this way, there are no two artifacts that are intelligent that are identical. Each one, even if they're the same type of thing, the essence within each one makes it as individual as a person. I have a magical rock of dravening that has a, an intelligence, uh, intelligence and it talks to me and guides me and so on and so forth. Somebody else has a magical rock of dravening, of which there are five. It has That doesn't mean they're going to give the exact same device. They are still individual egos and intelligence and subconsciousness within that artifact. Um, but back to the original question. No, just by being near one, normally a mage cannot. Although there are a lot of different magical... Uh, creatures and races that may have abilities of that nature. It's not necessarily linked to being a mage. It's a very long answer to a very simple question, and I apologize. 
I just came up with an idea a couple days ago for a very cool artifacty kind of thing that I'll be putting into my live D&D group coming up. So I can't talk about it because some of those people might be listening in. In fact, I know they are. But uh, I was very excited about it because it'll be humorous and entertaining. Um, and uh, particularly bad for them, but always good for me. And that's what's important. What matters is if it's good for the story. So, um, yeah, so they're uh, prepping. They went back to Broda's camp to begin training and practice and gather the supplies they need. They did buy some um, gear, some weapons and things, all under the cover story of they're just trying to get back what they, uh, what they lost. So the cover story is that they plan to carry on, and they acted like they believed their items were at the bottom of the sea. Um, so let's see. So we've got a little bit of reading to get started, and then we're going to hop on into that. So I'm going to start reading. Here we go. For just a moment, Maeve felt herself in the air. The sensation of both flying and falling was an unusual and unexpected result of what felt like the 1,000th attempt. As she plunged into the warm water of the central sea, she felt her board strike against her back. She rose from the water furious. She snatched the board floating nearby and, fighting the urge to snap it in half, made her way back onto the beach. You did better that time, said Broda, watching her throw the board to the ground. Bah! Maeve explained. Three seconds before I flipped like a fool. It takes time, Maeve, he assured her. Not all things come to everyone easily. Maeve looked back out over the water at her friends. As was expected, paddle was a, pedal was a natural. With only a few minutes of practice, she was already up and riding the waves. Uh, again, not professionally, but she knew the basics, was able to get up and do so. Pedal is a half-kender. She's incredibly dexterous, um, and something of this nature would just very easily come to her and her race's natural abilities. Uh, Petal was using one of the community's children's boards, and she made her way back and forth across the water, laughing in glee. Ran and Kip weren't too far behind her. Both were also incredibly agile and looked to be enjoying themselves as well. Um, again, I can't stress, as I've stressed many times, that uh, I can't stress enough, that Ran, while a warrior, shares a, a ton of thief-like characteristics. Um, for more accuracy, he's probably dual class. Um, but primarily a, a fighter. Raised that way because his father was the same. Right? Uh, Shen Quan was uh, known for being very, uh, I guess I said, ninja-ish in, in the way of, of his combat. Um, he had both of those kind of skill sets. Um, let's see. Now, Artis, uh, Artis was definitely making progress, but was still struggling, though not nearly as much as Maeve. Uh, Artis is a human, she's a cleric, uh, kind of warrior trained, not a whole lot, uh, not saying that she's, you know, completely unagile or a trip or anything, but this is something that she has no practice with, so it's going to come a little bit slower for her. Uh, but to say Maeve was struggling was an understatement. She could say it was impossible, yet so many other minotaurs from the community were quite adept at the sport. And you have to imagine that... Um, a minotaur surfing, right? Put that combo into your brain. Um, their boards are obviously going to be larger and sturdier to be able to support their weight. Minotaurs can average um, between three and four hundred pounds. 
I'd say soaking wet, so I guess that's accurate, uh, without any type of gear, weapons, or incredibly heavy armor. Minotaur are very tall, very wide, and very thick. Um, <clears throat> so they're going to have heavier boards prepared for them, but it's still going to work the same concept. They have that extra strength, both in their legs and just body in general, that controlling the board, once they get the hang of it, would be able to do so. Uh, again, Minotaurs on Merge Worlds, at least all of the ones we've ever come across at this point, have humanoid feet. Um, if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons and Minotaurs present themselves within a story or adventure, it's an interesting question to ask your DM, because not everybody does it the same way. Some traditional um, D&D, the Minotaurs have hooves for feet, uh, some do it with the classic backward knees, some with the forward knees, and then some do it with regular five-toe humanoid feet. I like regular feet on my Minotaur, and that's always the type of Minotaur that I've used. Uh, Tanya says, what's up, Never played? Got any you thought I'd check it out? Hey, well, welcome. Happy to have you. So, you know, she taught the basics as everyone else. She's out there trying to get going. So Maeve is, is having a hard time with this. Uh, and again, I want to mention one of the things that... Rhoda just said is, hey, it takes time. We don't have time, grumbled Maeve. Every moment is wasted time that that damn wizard could be taking over Quintius. I am slowing us down. And, and Maeve would feel that way, right? Maeve is someone who has always excelled in a lot of the things, that most of the things that she ever tackled. Uh, but most of those things were along the paths that she was walking. Originally as a cleric and then moving into as a paladin, which ended up becoming her uh, final path. Um, both of those things came very natural to her, and she excelled at those. Um, she doesn't. She's 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 one of those people who very easily finds herself failing at something, uh, starts f forming a wall, if you will, uh, getting angry at that thing, and then just very very quickly wanting to give up on it. Not saying she would, but it's kind of against her nature. But the wanting to, I can't do it, kind of thing, very very quickly. But she says she's slowing them down. Nonsense, says Broda. You're able to paddle on the board while staying afloat. That is the majority of the skill you're going to need. The waves and rocks of the, bo of the bay are far too chaotic to surf, even for someone as experienced as myself. So he's, he's saying the same thing I was saying. You're going to be on the board. You just need to keep your balance and be able to paddle the board for quite a distance because they're not going to be able to just walk up to the shore and go because that's within range. They're going to have to go into the water a distance away from the city probably out of sight of the city, and then paddle out into the water and come in that direction to better hide their location or the fact that they're coming. The two stood there in silence a moment, and finally Broda stepped over to her board and helped and set it on the ground. She picks it up and he sets it on the ground, and I want to say that the ground is, is, is sand, right? They're at the beach, but it's not just completely flat. It's kind of hilly. He sets it down and it wobbles a little bit. Okay? He... He then motions to her and says, here, step onto the board. Maeve, hesitantly and slightly confused, nods and walks up and steps up on the board as it's laying in the sand, you know, trying to keep her balance on it because it's, it's wobbling a bit as it stands on the sand. Uh, he then stepped up onto the board behind her. Placing his hands on her sides, he gently rocked from side to side, giving her, uh, guiding her in the correct movements to main mountain. So he's, he's been there, he's like, getting the, you know, holding herself out like you would, getting your traditional... So for a stance, he's kind of behind her, and he's just slightly swaying the board and her just as it's sitting in the sand. You know, not as bad as it would be in the water, but to give a little bit of that feeling, trying to help her get into the position. 
You are too stiff, he says, too rigid. You're fighting against the movement of the water when you should be trying to become one with it. His voice was calm and patient. He stood very close, his hands guiding her body back and forth, simulating the movements of the board of the water. Riding the board is no different than fighting on a battlefield. You cannot stand rigid. Try to use form and stance. You can't stand rigid or try to use form and stances that you would learn in training. Your body must be fluid, able to move and sway. You can use movement and momentum against your foe. You have to dodge, strike, move, parry, and swing, all in battle. You must be able to adapt to the movement of the enemy to move as they do until an opening to strike presents itself. The board is your weapon, an extension of you no different than your sword. It must be a part of you ready at all times for the correct moment to strike. So as he's saying this thing, he's like, you know, you're kind of doing that swaying and they're kind of getting into a bit of a pattern as the board is rocking back and forth in the sand. And she's, you know, maintaining her balance. And it's as she's standing there and he's kind of got her hands on her side and he's moving with her, you know, you get into that. He's starting to feel a bit more comfortable. And he's explaining this to her. And as he's explaining, he's putting it in terms that she might understand. The board's extension of your feet. Note everyone when a sword's an extension of your hand. When you're in combat, you have to be able to feel that way. You can't just... You know, if you've ever seen anybody learn anything martial arts, you know, you've got your forms and your perfect things, but you get out into combat, it's not that exact thing. You've got to be able to adjust and move. You learn those basics and those forms so that you can then flow with them and turn them into what they need to be, to be able to, someone's attacking you, to be able to respond to that attack in kind fluidly to parry and then return and so on and so forth. Sword fighting being the same type of thing. Coming back and then attacking and then defending and then attacking. Being able to, to move fluidly with the momentum of the attacks as well as your own defense. And he's trying to put those terms which are going to make a little more sense to her. You know, which seem to. Now as he's speaking these words and talking to her, he decides to punctuate that final word, the word strike, by bringing his foot hard down on the side of the board. So he's saying, you've got to be ready to strike. And he just kind of brings his foot down heavy on one side, which is going to shift the board. Okay? The uneven ground tipped the board sideways, causing them both to have to adjust. Instinctually, Maeve adjusted her stance, maintaining her balance. So she manages to not fall off when he does that. She does what she's supposed to, adjusts and moves with that. But as soon as she's done, she turns around, looking at him kind of pissed, like, that wasn't very nice, you know? She turned angry, looking down at the shorter minotaur, who stood there smiling, and her fists clenched in anger. You did not fall, he said. Maeve nodded, because she'd not, but she still wasn't happy about the little trick he played. Now it's time to return to the water, little sister. There's nothing left for you to learn on land. Practice is all that becomes. He moved off the board, and she picked it up, and began making her way back into the surf. She'd show him he, she decided she was going to show him that she was not to be defeated by the waves. As she paddled her way out deeper, she couldn't help but wonder why Broda got under her skin so easily. He had been nothing but kind and was clearly a good leader, beloved by his people. Why did his pacifism anger her so? Because it does. It's something she struggled with. she's struggling with. And why does his constant and ever-calm demeanor make her so want to scream at him? Like, no matter how, you know, enraged or passionate she's about, he's always that calm, like, hey, let's keep it cool. He's, he has that kind of demeanor. He doesn't seem to let emotion rule him in any way. And, of course, worst of all, why could she even now still feel the touch of his hands on her? So even if she's floating out there frustrated, she still remembers what it felt like a moment ago when they were kind of on the board together. So... 
with this renewed invigoration of, okay, I'm going to tackle this stuff. I'm kind of irritated. With that same time in the back of my mind, like, I'm going to show him I can do this. You know, he believes in me, yes, but Maeve is viewing it more of a challenge at this point. You know, it's like, I'll show him I can do this, son of a bitch. <laughs> it's just, you know, kind of the, the, the denial of that type of thing. Um, so she gets back out and saves and they continue to, to practice. Now, overall, the entire group of them, and it's not just them, I'm going to stress that, but we'll say the group of them, uh, practice and trained for three full days. They didn't want to have to go that long, but Broda assured them they needed to have a certain amount of skill and experience if they hoped to be able to make it into Daggers Bay. With what they're looking to do, it shouldn't be too, too hard, but he doesn't want to take any chances. Um, and it's, as I mentioned, it's not just them. They are taking several members of the Miss Dandelion's crew with them, right? Because remember that, it's not just these, these five people out in the wilds with Broden and his people. Half of the crew survived. Their gear, some of the gear could be in there. They lost their captain. They have a personal stake in this as well. They're also incredible loyal, incredibly loyal to Petal and this group of people and would want to help in these situations. And they're all trained. They fought with them in the past, you know, so... I fought alongside of them in the past. Let me reword that. So six members of their crew are going to be coming with them. So the six that were chosen, which at this point were all human, uh, specifically because they're going to be sneaking into this keep, uh, bringing too many minotaurs, because obviously Maeve is going, um, is a concern. Because if they are successful and able to make it into the keep with the plan that they have, and they're able to do what they need to do, and they end up picking a fight with this Captain Redbeard who lives in there, they still haven't seen yet. Having too many Minotaurs could very easily focus that anger or retribution on Broda and his people. And they don't want that. They were very clear of saying, hey, when they were speaking with the mage, hey, we're a group that they helped and we're moving on. We're not part of them. They were just helping us out. Because when this is all said and done, these guys are going to move on and Broda and his people are going to stay here. And they don't want to leave them in a situation where there could be in, you know, trouble or problems for their people. Especially knowing Broda and their people don't fight and would, at that point, really just have to flee and leave their home. They don't want that. So Maeve's going to be the only Minotaur going with them. Broda and several of his people are going to be going with them as guides and to help get into the bay. But once they make it up into the keep, Broda is not going with them. That none of his people have any intention of placing themselves in a situation where they would be brought into combat. They're there for assistance only. Um, in fact, when they're traveling, it's actually going to be some of Broda's people that's going to be carrying things like several heavy coils of rope and things that they'll have kind of wrapped around them. Being more experienced, they'll have a better time or easier time navigating choppy waters with the additional weight. Uh, which is going to make it a little bit easier for Maeve and Artis and their friends to be able to uh, keep their weights to a minimum while trying to keep their balances on these boards and such. So they spend three full days, all day, sun, sun up to sundown, uh, basically out in the waves practicing. Um, like I said, Broda, finally after three days, Broda's like, okay, I feel like you guys have reached enough level of proficiency, including Maeve at this point, who can get up on the water and, and stand with the waves for a few seconds, but she's the paddling around part is she'd actually be okay at that. She's pretty strong uh, physically fit-wise, so she wouldn't have any problem with that. But it is, it is very tiring to paddle on a board, and that's something else they have to prepare themselves for. But finally, Broda's like, okay, I think you guys are good to go. 
And while they originally planned to go the next evening, they were forced to have to delay an additional day because of some unfortunate weather, some stormy weather. And the bay was going to be as dangerous as it was normally. They couldn't afford to try to do that during stormy weather. Uh, Michael says, I can picture Broda as a stoned, laid-back surfer. Like, hey, dude. That's very much how he was originally designed. Just a very laid-back dude. And one of, the, one of the funny things about Broda that I haven't really brought in yet, but was part of that character creation, is that Broda's one of those guys where his hair's... His hair, he's got kind of curly hair, right? He's got, like, blondish hair. He's a very light, light colored, almost like a blonde coat, uh, minotaur. But he has a bit of like a curly kind of mop top between his horns. And it's one of those things where, you know, it, it was a running gag when we were putting Broda together that um, you know, no matter what happened, you're out in the surface. As soon as he comes out of the water, his hair is always back in that perfectly curled little same thing. It's like he's always got that luscious hair that never gets messed up no matter what's going on. Um, that was just kind of a silly in aside. Uh, but yeah, Broda, Broda definitely has that. He, he has that very calm. And even though I'm not talking with a surfer voice, he has a little bit of that. I'm not trying to give him an accent because I'm not good at accents. But yes, very much so. He's like, hey, come on, let's be cool. It's a movie with so-and-so. Because he, again, he's only in his mid-20s himself. He's not that old. Um, but he, he very much has that laid-back, hey, let's not, everybody be, everybody be cool. No reason to be too serious about this. Although, you know, he is responsible enough to know how serious the situation is. <laughs> but yeah, Michael, it's, it's definitely funny. I like that a lot. Um, so they're forced to wait four days before they're finally able to go. The fifth day, the weather's cleared enough that they're going to be able to make their attempt on the keep. And uh, during that four days, that's another four days that they're spending with Broda and his community, um, which they thoroughly enjoyed. It's probably the longest they've stayed in one place uh, since they started this whole little adventure, right? They've been traveling nonstop. Um, so getting to kind of <laughs> settle down and stay still on land. And for some of the crew that survived, this is... Uh, they the only time they ever really stay a long time in port is on Darstopia, which is where they live the majority of their lives when they're not out on the water. Uh, and Broda's people are very welcoming, so they feel very it feels very much like home. And when they're not um, surfing or practicing and so on and so forth, or making plans and checking out gear. Um, what little time they have left of that is eating, spending time with members of the community who welcome them, prepare the food, um, which is always tasty. Although, again, it's very seafood and plant-esque, um, which isn't too bad. I mean, fish is all right. I like fish. I prefer it with fish and chips. If it's not deep, if it's not beer battered and deep fried, I'm not interested in it. Uh, and that's for vegetables, too. But just, that's just me. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, they're enjoying their meal and they're, and they're learning more and more about their, the history of Broda and his people. Uh, Broda doesn't speak anymore about his life as a warrior, but, you know, you can, just from the admiration of his people, stories of, oh, there was the time when this happened, there was a time we did this, and they, they learn more and more about Broda and his people's history, his specific people, um, as they were warriors ahead of time, and how they met some of those other races that pop in, right? There's a couple of humans, elves, clerics, we talked about them that are living there within the community as well. One of the other things they learn about is Broda's island. There is a small island just offshore, barely visible from the shore, but just close enough that you could see it. Um, the island itself is not huge. Like, you could stand on one side of the island and see the other side of the island, just to give you an idea, right? Um, and this is a bit of land that they claim as well, and that they use 
um, for a couple of different things. They do a lot of their fishing over there. The island itself is completely surrounded by an incredibly thick and sharp reef. Um, even small boats would have a difficult time making it over or through the reef to get to the island. So jagged and sharp are things. The surfboards and stuff are really how they get across because they're floating just on the surface. Um, so that small island is, is very difficult to get to. And for Broden and his people, they view it for a couple of things. View it as, number one, a backup position, right? So if there was an issue or they needed to hide or run or something of a situation, if there was danger and they needed to protect themselves, um, they could fall back to that island. They keep it very well stocked. There are some temporary shelters already there. As long as uh, multiple, there are some trees and stuff on the island that they could cut down as well. It does have uh, a fresh water supply. Uh, so it does have water there and they keep it stocked with supplies. So that is a fallback position for Broda and his people. The reef is also where they do a lot of their fishing because it's just teeming with, with ocean life. Um, as well as where they do their diving and where they find the pearls that they trade with uh, Dagger's Bay that are very valuable and sought after. Um, that is where they do their diving within the, the reef itself. Uh, so they learn about that island and that that's there. And while they haven't had to go to it, and occasionally Broda's people will go out there, um, no one full-time lives on the island, although they regularly make sure supplies are stocked. Uh, in case anything were to you know, go down and they needed to flee to a place to defend themselves. Because again, no big ships are going to be able to make it really within range because of this huge reef that's in that area. Um, let's see. So that's, uh, yeah, where they get their pearls. Um, and of course, while they're learning all these stories about Brodus people and such, they're also sharing tales of their own. Um, they explain to Broda and his people, something that the majority of Merge Worlds doesn't know, right? What I'm about to say, for those of you who've been following Merge Worlds and know the Merge Worlds story, uh, this should make sense and not make sense at the same time. The vast majority of the world have no idea who the Fire Moons are. They don't know how Merge Worlds came to be. They don't know why the Great Merge happened 20-some years ago. They only know that it did, right? Only the people involved in the Merged World story line, my tale, if you will, that had to be involved to learn about this and to fight Nihilat Firemoon and to open up the world so the gods had access again, to learn that history of why all this came to happen. Um, that's a story and information that is slowly spreading across this massive, massive world, this new plane of existence, if you will. Um, but the vast majority of regular folks don't know that story. They just know the merged happened, the world went crazy, and now they're just trying to build themselves a new life there. So to hear the story, hey, this is what happened, this is why it happened, this is how our parents were directly involved with, to be honest, saving the world in several different situations. Because um, these kids would have grown up knowing all of those tales, even not that their parents would teach them out of ego, but hey, you're going to take over for me in this role eventually, I would hope, especially you look at Mercy and Artist. I want you to understand what you're walking into. How did Darsh get Darshtopia? Well, we were looking for the stones. Why do you need the stones? Let me tell you the whole story of why we were doing all that. So the kids know all this history that a lot of the world doesn't, and they have been sharing it 
where it's been important in their travels. Uh, but this is an opportunity to really go over the whole story and tell a lot of it with these group of people who you got to imagine they're getting to hear Mers Worlds for the first time too. A lot of them may think this is an incredibly uh, interesting story uh, to learn about how their lives were shaped by these events at this point, thousands of miles away, some of them before some of these people were even born and how their whole lives were shaped by that. Um, a couple of things in particular do Broda and his people find interesting. Uh, the first one, of course, is Kronayar, learning of that there's another Minotaur empire on Merged Worlds, um, that again, while it's thousands of miles from where they are right now, uh, in the grand scheme of how big Merged Worlds is, it's really not that far from the Minotaur empire that they fled years ago. I mean, it would take a long time to go both directions, but when you look at the scope of the size of Merged Worlds, seeing two in that relatively close area, uh, just, I mean, using mathematics would imply that there could be others out in the world somewhere as well. And <clears throat> hearing Kronayar's story, how it, you know, there was factions that broke and split open and fought amongst themselves for control of the Empire. A lot of this they'd learned from Maeve herself directly, since her father was directly involved in that. Um they are going to be very interested. Okay, well, interested to learn. Okay, well, here's a Minotaur kingdom that took a different path than ours. Instead of deciding to go ahead and try to take over all the land around it, they're working with the other races. They're trading with humans and dwarves and elves that they've made a pact. They're, they're, they're in, in allegiance, part of the southern kingdoms. They're in a league with these other races that they have made peace with and fight side by side instead of against, um, which is the kind of empire, the kind of thing that... Broda and his people thought they were a member of, right? That they were fighting to protect their people, only to learn that they'd been lied to and misled the whole time. So to hear that there's a real Minotaur kingdom out there that's closer to the beliefs that they wished theirs had, that's going to be an important piece of information for them. And then the other big thing, of course, is Darshtopia itself. Learning that it's owned by Darsh, that he's basically... I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's a small king. Right? He's a merchant lord who owns these islands. That's his own land, you know, that's not under sway of any other nation, although allied with many of them. Uh, this is another place where it's even more so what they were looking for, right? This is a place where all these races live in common and all these places come to trade. It's a place of peace. They learned of the Darstopian games, if you'll remember the Darstopian games a long time ago, right? Where they, the, which are basically like the uh, Olympics of Birds Worlds where he held that, a place for people to come and compete in, uh, you know, in togetherness and not opposites, right? Uh, as friends and not enemies uh, in peace and to increase trade and friendship through that. Uh, that's, Broda hearing that, you know, that you got to make wonder in the back of his mind, he's like, is it too good to be true? Like, clearly it's his daughter. Uh, he's going to have some of those doubts, but wow, there's a place out there a lot more along the lines of the kind of world we want to live in while at the same time understanding that these are still warriors. You know, Darsh is still a fighter. He has his army, navy primarily, uh, as does Kronayar and Serenity and all. These are people who still stand up and fight and do stuff and involved in battles. Probably learn about Oromon in this time for the first time, which, you know, not going to be happy. No one wants to hear Oromon. Listen, there's a kingdom out there that's constantly trying to take over the world and fuck it up for everybody else. Especially learning about what Oromon did to Darsh and the Emperor capturing him, making him fight in games, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Knowing that these things are out there, that's going to be some hesitant to Broda. It's like, oh wow, 
Garstobia, awesome. We could live there. Oh, wait, they're fighting people all the time. Mm, not so much, regardless of the reason why, even if it's justified. We're trying to get away from that. We don't want to fight. So, you know, it's kind of that yin-yang of it, of it all, of, of hearing that type of thing. So it's still going to be, a, more than anything else, a very positive experience learning that these type of places exist. Uh, serenity as well. <clears throat> How allied Serenity and Darstopia are, even though they're so far apart. So all those things would be very interesting to Broda and all of his people. Because <clears throat> while they're happy where they are, and in no way am I, do I want you to think I'm setting up where they're just going to pack up and go live in Darstopia. It's not the case at all. <clears throat> it might give them an idea of the type of lands they may want to, or the type of world they want to create for themselves. So there's that. And then learning, of course, what caused the merge and the, the fight and the battle involved and all that. Learning about the source, which I don't bring up that often, because the source is relatively spoiler-heavy for the early merge world stuff, for folks who may have not gotten to it yet. Uh, but learning about the source and everything involved with that, um, that's, that's a lot to learn about the world around you. Especially when you learn that the world you live on is not really a world. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably haven't listened to some of the older Merge Worlds. <laughs> Merge Worlds is not a world, but a second prime material plane, in essence. It's, it, it's, a, it's a plane that mirrors the prime material plane in many ways, while at the same time, clearly does not. Um, but in itself is its own plane that is not shared with the original prime material plane. Prime material plane is where you'd find Earth, or any of the D&D worlds, right? Farron for Forgotten Realms. For any of you who might have just recently saw the Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves movie who just came out this past weekend, please do know that they're not a sponsor. But by God, I wish they were, because that movie was awesome. And if you've not had a chance to see it yet, I highly recommend it. It was wonderful, and as someone who uh, has been playing D&D and running my own worlds and campaigns for a long time, it's the D&D movie I've been waiting for. Uh... The few things that they had to change from what would be the way D&D &D works in order to make it work in a movie didn't take away from the game or the movie at all. I was unhappy. I was not unhappy with anything they did. The amount of cameo nods to lore and such uh, was phenomenal. Uh, it does take place on uh, Farron, which is the Forgotten Realms setting of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, so geographically, you know, you see a map of it in the movie. Like, ah, I, I turn to my wife and I'm like, I know all of those places. Like, I've seen this map. I am familiar with this map, you know. It's kind of cool to see that up on screen. Uh, I'm very excited to hear that. Oh, God, I'm going to butcher his last name. Joe Menginelli, I believe, uh, is currently working to with Wizards of the Coast on what could be a Dragonlance live-action TV show. And... I can't hope for anything more than that. I've wanted that my whole... Wanted that since I was a teeny tiny kid when Dragonlance first came out. Dragonlance was my introduction to Dungeons & Dragons. Um, so I would love to see that. I know it's a bit of an aside from the Merge World story, but uh, again, the Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, highly, highly recommended. And that's coming from someone who's pretty lore knowledgeable, you know, and I was looking for them to mess with stuff, and they really didn't. They gave me exactly what I wanted. The monsters looked and acted how I wanted them to. 
magic worked awesomely. I highly recommend all of this. A couple things in the in the movie that I want to see how that happened and how that works in the game, because I'm sure it was kind of based on 5th edition. I play 2nd edition. Everybody knows that. Uh, some of the things that they did in there, uh, especially where it came with spell components, I'm really interested to learn how that works, if that's a 5th edition thing or something just for the movie, because some of that I'd really like to see playable in D&D. But... Enough of me talking about the movie. Great movie. Loved it. You should go see it too. In fact, go see it twice. So that way they'll make more. Um, <laughs> but yes. Um, so anyways, they learned all about... The, the Broda and his people are learning all about what happened in the past and the creation of Merge Worlds. Well, Maeve and her friends uh, are learning more about this part of the world and uh, Broda, Broda and his people. So all that kind of stuff is going on at the same time. Um while they're preparing. And finally, after the, the storm's clear of the fourth day, the fifth day, the, uh, the night of the fifth day, so they can go through the fifth day that night, they're going to make their way towards the Keep of Daggers Bay with the hope that they weren't too late to save Quintius. Okay? So as I mentioned, it's going to be our five regular heroes, as well as six of their crew. Puts them at 11, right? They will be accompanied by Brota and three members of his community, uh, including Lays, his second-in-command. If you remember, Lays is the female Minotaur who was his second-in-command when he was in the military. She's like twice his age and bigger than him as well. Everybody's, Brota's actually a slightly on the small side for Minotaurs. Not in muscle, like dude's cut, he's just built. But he's just slightly more sh short and compact, uh, and uh, his forehead barely comes up to Maeve's chin, right? So... Maybe has got like a full foot on, on the guy. Um, but Lays is even bigger. Uh, and uh, they're going to be coming uh, as guides and support. Um, and they're, they're going to kind of stay down there and try to hang on to all the boards in case they have to escape the same way they came in. Now they've set up, of course, a notice. Hey, you won't be able to see much up there. It's going to be dark out. But we will literally toss a torch out the window if you should flee. That's kind of the, that's kind of the, 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 the plan here. If we make it up and through this into this cavern and up into the keep, worse comes to sh down to it, and we're, you need to get away because things have gone bad. We're going to try to throw a torch out. Right? You see a torch come flying through the air down. Just get out of there. Abandon our boards. The four of you get to safety. So on and so forth. Second thing is, if the sun starts coming up, get out of there. If we're not back before the sun comes up, you guys just can't be hanging out down there where everybody can see you at that point. So if it's getting close to sun coming up and you don't hear from us, leave. We don't want to risk your safety and the safety of your people for what we're doing. Because that's truly the case. Up there in Daggers Bay, they see Broda and his people down there at the bottom. And then maybe they catch some people running around inside. They're going to put that together very quickly. It could all come down on Broda and his people. They don't want that to happen. So they get prepped. They get ready to go. They travel on land a fair distance with their board and the gear, boards and the gear that they're carrying. So they get to the spot they feel is the best spot to go into the water, sail out, because they're going to kind of sail away from the beach, and then kind of hook, curve, and then go back towards the cliffs further up on. So they're coming in from the ocean, not along the beach itself. So they're making their way through. The night sky was still cloudy after the day, still, clou uh, still cloudy after the day's stormy weather. No starlight shone, and the moon was completely hidden. As the group began paddling their boards away from the shore, they quickly found the darkness to be both a blessing and a curse. 
Broda and his people knew these waters well, and he was in the lead. They all stayed close, hoping none would lose their way in the darkness. Those with improvision were barely able to see each other in the cold waters. Now, a few minutes ago, I said the warm waters of the Central Sea. If you've ever been to the ocean, it is not hard for the water to go from warmish in the day to really cold quickly at night. And at this point, they're going to be waiting till it's well after dark before they start making their way in. They, they want to make sure that the, the castle has gone to sleep, if you will, and coming in at that type of period. Uh, so those with uh, improvision are going to be able to see everybody else somewhat. The water is still cold, so the heat, little heat blobs in there, but they're also going to be cold because the water is getting on them. It's going to lower their body temperature. Makes it a little bit harder for infravision because you've got to remember, infravision is very different than 5th edition's dark vision. I don't use dark vision. Infravision is a little bit closer to like what the Predator sees in the Predator movies. The more heat, the different shades. They, you, when you learn to see like that, it's just you can see everything in, in detail. The only thing you can't really see is writing, unless you're using a magical ink that provides heat, which most people don't have. But that's what they're seeing. Uh, for those without any infravision, all they could do was try to follow along by sound. Um, and they would, they would have that. They, would, they, would be, they can't be chatting away, but they would have someone, you know, who it does have a vision, keeping an eye out, saying, you know, uh, ran, more to the left, <laughs> you know, pull back in, you're getting too far away kind of thing. Um, and that's why they've got uh, Broda at the front and Lays at the back, with the, their other two people kind of on the left and right of everybody else who's paddling. So the four of them are kind of doing this cross shape here with the rest of the 11 people in the middle. Okay, it's 11. Six and five? Yes, my math was strong. It was nearly an hour in the water before they finally began to approach the bay and the base of the keep. The water became very quickly increasingly difficult to maneuver the closer that they came to the cliffs. The waters here were also very deep and treacherous. And I've stressed this a lot of times. There's a lot of currents in here. And as the waters are coming up and smashing against the cliffs, if you've never seen this, I'm going to describe it to you. The waters come up and smash against the cliffs. You know, it's very different effect than when the water comes up on a beach and then sloshes back out again. It's hitting a wall. And down, just like there's holes above, that they're going to try to climb up that supposedly have holes in them, the little caves, there's going to be some of those under the water as well, which is going to cause currents. It's going to cause suction and flow. And if you get caught in one of those and get pulled under the water you will very likely never be seen again. Um, and so that's something they have to be very careful of. So they're, as they're approaching the bay, um, they, try to they try to keep themselves not as close together because they don't want the waves smacking into each other and, and f having them smack into each other and flip each other off their boards. Um, and these guys at this point have been paddling for an hour. Well, there's opportunities to just kind of glide and let the water take you, which it would have for a period, especially as they were approaching the, the cliffs, the current, you know, the waves in general pulling them back towards land. Um, they're still going to be a little bit tired from all the paddling and such. So this is something that they knew was going to be in there prepared for. It. So as they get in, they find that the waves are already a bit more violent than they thought they would be or that they were prepared for. And part of that's going to be because of the, the weather and such from previous. It is still a tad bit windier than it would be on a nicer evening. Um, and Maeve, of course, is, is, is having a bit of a hard time staying afloat. She's doing her, her best, as is everyone else. 
and no one's fallen off their board at this point. Now, they don't have their swords on their belts. Okay, the boards are going to be strapped to their back. They're going to try to keep the swords, because everybody has a sword in this situation. Who uses a blade? Everybody has a sword. And it's going to be literally strapped right down the center of their back to make so they're not pulling them one side or another. <coughs> For balance. Uh, they're also going to be going in barefoot. Nobody's wearing shoes or boots or sandals in this situation. So they're not going to be going in with any foot armor or even any body armor other than the light clothing that they're carrying. Uh, Petal has even left her robes behind. She still has uh, her small pack on her back where she has spell components and things that she would need as well as her spell book. But most of her belongings, along with her robe, she entrusted to the priest. There was, remember, there was a cleric that was living with them who's not a minotaur. And she stressed something to him, made a very, very, very uh, clearly something important. She's like, hey, I'm, I'm giving you my stuff and I'm, you're gonna, I'm trusting you to hold on to it for him. He's like, of course, I'm happy to. She's like, she goes, I'm stressing this to you very importantly because these things are very important. Incredibly important. And should something happen where we fail to return, I want to ask something of you. And the cleric's like, of course, if I can help. What is that? He goes, I need you to make sure that these belongings get back to my parents in serenity. It is imperative that the things I'm giving you right now, regardless of anything else, my things have to get back to my parents in serenity. This is more important than my own personal survival. Regardless of what happens to me. This pack I'm giving to you, which has my things and a book in it, you have to get them to my parents somehow if I don't return. She goes, I've made, there's, there's money in this bag. There is a small kingdom's worth of wealth in this backpack. You because know, Petal's not poor either, and she would have gotten some of the money out of artists, that, her money out of artists' Hayward Hammersack. I need this money. No one's going to question, question Petal why it's her money. Okay, here's some money. She goes, in here is money. It should cover cost of anything. Someone to travel there. If you get there, my, you will. they will, four or five times the value of what you find in here, they will give you to return my stuff. But it is imperative. The lives of many are in the balance of whether or not you can get these items back to my family. The cleric's being told this, and he's like, okay, this is, Big responsibility you're throwing on me, but yes, if it's, I can see it's important. I know you to be a good person, so if this is going to, you know, potentially save lives from what you're saying here, many lives I will want. If I he goes, if I have to take it myself, I guarantee you, should you not return, I will make sure that your items get back to your home of serenity. Petal, still nervous about the situation, accepts that promise and thanks him very much for doing so. So I want to stress that Petal does not have any special book on her at this very moment, nor her robes. Those items are in the hands of the cleric back in Broda's community. But no, I'm still not going to tell you what the book is. <laughs> People have been asking me that. People sure want to know. I'll probably find out eventually. She doesn't have it with her. <clears throat> so as they make their way up, Towards the, the cliffs, they start getting separated by the waves. Now, they all know where they're basically going, right? We're going to 
going right to the center of the base of the thing. If we do get separated, get there. Even though it's really dark out, there are going to be some lights along the top of the cliff, right? There's a city up there. Even in the middle of the night, there's going to be torches and lights and so on and so forth. So as they're approaching, they can see the top of the cliffs. They can see the lights on the keep itself. It's like a beacon that they're headed towards. That's awesome. That's going to help. Down here in the dark water, where it's pitch black at, at certain points, we know we've just got to get to the base of that. And if we can all get there and kind of hang on to each other, we can figure out what we have to do next. And Maeve, of course, having one of the hardest times struggling to stay afloat, she doesn't have uh, an incident where she falls off. She successfully makes it to the bottom of the cliff, as do most everyone else. Now, I say most because, unfortunately, as they were drawing close, a wave just did happen to pull against one member who had mistakenly gotten a little bit separated from the rest of the group. And that wave basically lifted Kip's board high away from the others. And Kip, given very little opportunity to do anything else, just got to hold on to the board and try to keep it in, uh, keep it right, keep it flat and level. Feels himself holding on as for just a moment he's in the air, and then suddenly he hits something very, very hard. And there's the sound of wood splintering, and the wind is knocked out of him. His board has been thrashed against one of the many sharp, jagged rocks that sticks out of the water in this area. And his board snaps clearly, you know, mostly in half. The water and the current pulls him immediately away from the rock again. As the water ebbs and flows, right? Comes down and in, next wave comes up. Down and in, next wave and up. Those of you who are, aren't are listening on audio, my hands are making that motion. Down and then pulling him up. He has that fear that now he's going to be thrown against it again, or worse, he's going to get caught in the current. And he manages to grab on to one half of the board. The other board, part of the board is lost. And he's, more than anything else, just trying to hang on to that board for dear life. The board itself is very buoyant. If he can keep his arms on it, it will help keep him above water. But if he loses it and gets pulled too deep, very likely he won't be able to make it to the surface. Now, the sound of wood splintering against the rock, everybody hears that. And you can imagine, for most of them, they don't know who. Right? They're in the waves. They've been slightly pulled apart at this point. Using infravision, those with infravision <clears throat> can see someone a little bit further out. And that they're only on half a board at this point. Very, very dangerously close to the same rock that he was thrashed against once, potentially a second time. In fact, that begins to be what happens. He feels himself being pulled and then suddenly pushed forward very much. He's holding onto the board as best he can, even though it's half a board. Still, if you've ever seen a surfboard, a good old-fashioned surfboard, which are historically longer than the ones we use today... These are traditional longer boards that they're using. I should have probably clarified that earlier. I apologize that I didn't. These are the traditional longer boards that were used in the early years of surfing. I did a little research on this. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he still has a fair amount of wood to hold on to. So he feels himself again being pulled and then fresh forward and... He can't see anything. He's, he's half elven. He's got infravision. But he's covered in soaking water. He's, he's wet. He's being thrashed around. He's losing track of where he is. When suddenly, 
he feels something heavy grab him by the back. He is wearing clothing, by the way. They're all wearing clothing. They're not going shirt, but they're usually just light shirts and stuff. But it grabs him by the back of his shirt, maybe back of his pants, grabs him right around that area and starts pulling him out into the water. He <laughs> reaches back to grab to see what it is and he feels a large, hairy hand. And he whispers out, thank you, because he knows it's got to be one of the minotaurs that has him. And sure enough, that's exactly the case. Lays was close enough that she was able to paddle over and grab onto him and with just her one arm paddling has enough strength pulling against the waves, basically pulling him alongside of her. Once they get a little bit further away from that rock, the water gets a little bit clearer. She's able to pull him up aside. So he's kind of beside her and she's still holding onto him. But like his back half is in the water and he's just kind of kicking while the top half is holding on. So he's not paddling, he's just kind of kicking. She's holding on doing paddling. So together, they're kind of moving forward. But this means that they're aboard down. It's going to be a lot harder for them to get back out of here. Especially since that half board's probably going to sink pretty quickly after they get off of it, if they get off of it. But it takes a good... I mean, from the moment they enter the bay, you can see the keep. 150 yards, maybe? 200 yards? It's not that far. It's close to 150, 200 meters. Meters and yards are close enough that for D&D purposes, we're going to say they're the same thing. They're not exactly, but they're close enough. So 150, 200 meters or yards, depending where you're from, is keep. wouldn't take that long, really, if the water was flat and smooth to paddle up there. It would take them a good 30 minutes to fight through it. And by the time they get there, everybody, even the more experienced members of the group, uh, the surfers, the road of them, are winded as well. <clears throat> Lays, when she finally gets up there, they were able to get close to the to the rocks. Um, it's a little bit... Uh, he, he basically has to, She has to hand off uh, Kip to Broda, who kind of pulls him up. Now, the base of this thing is not completely smooth. There is jagged rocks kind of sticking out the bottom of the thing. So there's enough room for several people to actually step up onto a rock area that's sticking out of the water of the base, okay? So it's not just completely smooth going down in the water. Oh, hello, Tyler. I just saw you popped in there. Hello. Uh, so it's not completely smooth going down completely deep into the water. It is jagged at certain points. Uh, the area above the water, most of that's been worn smooth years over the, the, over the uh, um, waves and stuff smacking against it, but there is part of it down along the bottom, some of it just under the water surface. Well, there's a place people can stand. And Broda is able to get up on there, pulls Kip up on there, and Kip's able to kind of hang on to it so he, he doesn't have to be paddling all the time. And this is what everybody's kind of coming along and grabbing onto so they have something to hold them in position. So the water and the waves coming against them isn't just keep pulling them in and out. Okay? And the worst waves and such are right at the entrance of the bay when you're first coming into where the rocks are. When you get into the shore, depending on the weather, it can be easier or worse. Right now, it's not too bad. So they make it to the base of this thing. And they take a good 5-10 minutes to rest. Because the next step, if you remember their plan, right? Ran and Petal said, if you can get us to the base, we can get you in there. But that means Ran and Petal now have to climb this cliff. Which has been the plan the whole time. <clears throat> now, you might think, Kip is a rogue. He's a bard, but he has rogue skills. Would he not be better suited in this situation? The answer is no. Um, 
it is important to remember that just because a class has a skill doesn't necessarily mean you use it all the time or you're good with it, right? <clears throat> Again, it's hard for me to speak to 5th edition, but for 2nd edition, when you have a rogue or rogue class like Bard, you start with multiple different rogue skills. Find and remove traps, pickpockets, uh, climb walls, comprehend languages, hide in shadows, move silently, right? There's a whole bunch of different skills there. Pick locks, pickpocket. And every level, you get a certain amount of points that you can put in those. And each point is a percentage point, right? So let's say every skill starts at 10. You have a 10% chance of succeeding at the roll. You have 10% chance of succeeding in that. Well, I get a level and I get 30 points. I put 10 in three of them. Okay, well now I have a 20% chance in three of those skills. Bard works the same way. I get to put points in those skills. But I don't have points to put in everything all the time. So you focus. These are the skills I want to be better at. I'm really good at picking locks and pickpocketing and such. But I'm not as good at the hiding in shadow and moving silently. I'm not the sneaky type in that regard. I'm the one that they can pull up front to help get them in the doors and make sure they're not falling into traps. Rogues, just like mages, can have specifications. Assassin type rogues, sneaky rogues, thieve rogues. Not all rogues actually steal stuff. It's just a class. Kip has many different skills. Climbing, he's okay with. Normal climbing in normal situations, he'd probably be fine. But this is an extra hard situation. He's going to be climbing up a very steep, well, it's not a smooth wall. For all intents and purposes, there's not a lot to climb onto. And it's wet and probably covered in moss or mildew and the other stuff you can find on rocks near the shore if you've ever been to a beach. So Kip is not excelled in this, although he's ten times the pickpocket Ran is. Because that's a skill he's put points into. He survived on the streets. Pickpocket, move silently, these are things he can do. Probably on par with Rand, the, the move silently kind of thing. Hiding shadows, just as good if not better than Rand, who's very good. Climbing, Rand. So Rand is going to climb up there with Petal. Petal is who's going to get them through the bars. And Petal is best climber out of all of them. Because she's a half-kender. And she's incredibly light. She's the one who's going to have the best chance uh, of making it up there with Rand. So sure enough, they prepare to begin their ascent up the cliff face. They take rope from the uh, people that came, like Lays had some, as well as one of the uh, miscellaneous Minotaur number two <laughs> that's with them. And Ran takes most of that rope on himself. He's going to take that weight on him. He doesn't want Petal to have that because they don't know exactly what they're going to find up there and how much room they're going to have to maneuver. Petal is going to have to cast a spell. So he's taking most of that weight on him. But again, this is something his father has prepared him for. He's been trained to climb enemy walls while armored with weapons if need be. This is something he's actually had a fair amount of practice with, even though he's not had a lot of opportunity to use that yet in the adventure that they're on. This, his father prepared him to take over his role as the person who goes and gets the information the queen needs. Right? Quan always hoped that Ran would take the same position he holds for Mercy, but with artists. So he's trained him in all those same skills. Even though, at this point, Ran does not know that his father is the head of Shadow Company, which is a branch of their military, which is their spy organization, for Serenity and stuff, which I've talked about in the past. Ran doesn't know his father runs that or that it even exists. Very few people do. 
they begin their ascent. And it is difficult. It's not easy. It's dark, which doesn't help. But it is helping them not be able to be seen climbing this wall. Because there will be guards who are occasionally looking down in the water, but they're looking for boats. Right? That's primarily what they're looking for. And it's hard to see on a cloudy, overshadowed day like it is, or night as it is anyways. And at this point, I would estimate is around 2 o'clock in the morning when they're making their ascent up this cliff face. There were a couple slips and a couple uh, close calls. But it takes them a good 15 to 20 minutes to climb up as high as they need to because the, the hole they're trying to get to is only halfway up the cliff. A cave. And sure enough, they make it up there. Now, when they get up to the... This is the first time they've been close. They have an idea of what's there, but they actually get there and find out that it's actually better than they thought it was going to be. Sure enough, it is a, it is a cave entrance big enough that a minotaur could fit through it. Uh, it'd be tight, but could fit through it. Uh, for the rest of the party, we'll have no problem getting in there at all. There are six strong metal bars put into the stone there, blocking entrance. Uh, close enough together that pedal can't fit between them. But these bars are set almost two feet into the cliff. Now this is done for a couple of reasons. If you're trying to put the bars in the cliff, if you're ever designing your own castle, from a realistic point of view, this might help you. If you're doing this and you're a DM, if you drill or bust holes to be able to put bars in too close to the edge of a natural rock formation, you're weakening that. And over time, the wind, the water, and just natural erosion of rain is going to cause that little bit of rock next to the bar to start to crumble away, and then the bar is just going to either fall out or someone's going to grab it and pull it. Now, if you're building a wall on a castle, that's different. You could be setting it into there as you're building the wall, it's much more sturdy. But when you're putting it in natural rock and you're drilling a hole to fit these bars in, or however you're going to put it in like that, you're weakening the rock around it. Too close to the edge means it's going to be weaker, and it's much easier to pull it out. Now, obviously in this situation, they don't expect someone up there who can pull it out, but still, they want this to last a long time. They don't want to put something that's only going to last one week. So they've got a good couple feet between where the bars are, which is enough room for Pedal to climb up in there and ran to get somewhat braced inside. So that Pedal, being as little as she is, can sit up right up in there. She can focus on her spellcraft without having to worry about falling down. This frees up her hands because she's going to need them for the spells. Ran can get in a little bit, get a shoulder up in there, holding with his foot, maybe even get a knee in there so he can do what he needs to do. Once they make it inside this little section, Pedal begins to cast her spell. The spell that she's using, the whole purpose of it, because they assumed this was hopefully like this. She uses one of three things that she thought might be useful. She's using one that's going to basically turn the rock around the bars to mud. She's going to literally turn it to a, a softer material, uh, which, which she does. Okay. Now, it's still material, but at that point, Ran can start working the bars out. Still not easy. But it makes it softer material. The rock softens it into almost like a mud-like. So he's pulling and working these bars out. And sure enough, he's capable. It takes usually about a minute or two each to start pulling these out. Pedal is helping a little bit by kind of chipping away with a dagger at the base of some of these things to try to help loosen it up a little bit. So when Rand gets to that one, he's already got a head start. They start pulling these bars out. And they pull them out. They're gently push, putting their hands through the holes between the bars which they could fit anyways, but only gets bigger as they're removing the bars, and laying them down gently inside. They don't want to whip them out behind them. 
A, someone might see that piece of metal glinting in the whatever lights out there. Or worse, it could fall and hit one of their friends on the head. Nobody wants to do that. That's not cool. Don't throw bars out windows when your friends are underneath. Life lesson. So they're setting them gently inside. Plus, you don't know what they're going to need yet. And they only have limited supplies right now. She has her little backpack and he has some rope and a hammer and pittance that he's had to use once or twice on the way up here. Which he's also using to help chip away at some of this stuff as quietly as they can. Now through the bars they can see that there's a bit of a tunnel that's bigger than the, than the hole itself. Once they get through this little bar area, it gets tall enough where it looks like a, a regular passage someone could walk around in. And they can see down just maybe five or six feet the passage sharply turns to the right, and they can see a bit of light glowing from in there. And the way the light flickers, it appears to be probably a torch. Um, more The amount it's flickering looks more like an open-faced torch than a closed lantern, but it's not moving enough to imply someone is carrying it. They watched this before they started working. She started casting spells. She casts her spell, and he starts getting those bars out. Now, he's about halfway through when Petal grabs, her, grabs his arm. Petal's hearing, better than his. He's got good hearing, better than his. She can hear footsteps coming closer. This is a problem. And so, with little else to do, they're going to have to deal with, if someone comes walking to this window, they're going to have to deal with that person. They're not going to be able to do it from this side of the bars. Rand quickly switches his position a little bit, the best he can, to allow Petal to slide forward, and Petal squeezes through the hole that they've made with the, with the couple of bars they've already removed. She's able to slip through. He's not quite small enough to fit through there, especially with still having rope and stuff on him. He's got lots of rope on him, because the goal is to throw the rope down so everybody else can climb up. So she climbs in and immediately starts preparing herself. She kind of gets in position, she's listening, and she's got her eyes closed, and two things are going on in her head. She's listening to see if she can tell how many people are coming, and after just a moment she can tell it sounds like one. It's a booted person, and they're walking with regular, like, steps. They're not rushing, they're not running because they hear them. They don't, she doesn't believe that, she believes it's probably a guard or patrol of some kind. So she prepares a spell. As this person is drawing closer, and she comes to the determination, yes, this person is going to be coming here. She prepares, begins the casting of her spell. Barely has the guard come around the corner, sees her, eyes open wide, and she releases her spell. And as it strikes him, his eyes just roll back in the back of his head, and he just whomp, flips right backwards, completely unconscious. She, she's cast a sleep spell on him. And in this moment, it was successful. And she's very excited for that. Because A, she got to cast a spell in the way that it was intended. Petal hasn't had a whole lot of those opportunities yet. And she's very excited by that. And two, she managed to do it successfully without a wild surge. Because remember, Petal is a wild mage, just like Deacon is. She taps into wild magic and can focus that. But wild magic can overpower a spell and cause unexpected results. Sometimes way better or way worse than what you wanted to happen. In this situation, she was able to control the power enough that the spell went off the way that it was supposed to. And it comes down to practice and training and how strong of a wizard you are. Uh, if you have more power to, um, more access to wild magic, you also have more power to control it. But 
the more powerful you are means the stronger your wild surge can be if it does fail and no mage is 100% correct. There's always, doesn't matter how much you do it completely the way it's supposed to be, there's always a chance a wild surge can happen. Even if you do everything right. In this situation, the spell worked correctly and pop, fell right in your, he, he's like, clunk, and just lands right back on the back of his head. She rushes in, looks around the corner, she sees no one else, and quietly as she can, starts dragging him back a little bit closer away from the hallway so someone else is walking up there. They don't see him. She waits a minute, and Rand's just sitting there quietly, you know, watching this, wanting to see what happens next, because he doesn't know what she can hear. He still hears the water and everything behind him. She's in there better. He doesn't want to do anything to mess her up. But after a moment, she realizes, okay, no one else is coming, and she comes back and she motions, because they've got their own little mini sign language artists in her group, just like Mercy and Dandy did. They have a small, we're ready to go, so they get back to doing what they're doing. She has to recast the spell, because the spell only has a short duration, the one that makes the, the ground softer, if you will, and she casts that transmute spell, and then they get back to working on the bars. So, finally, after what takes, overall, about 15 minutes to get the whole thing done, the last bar finally comes out of its slot, because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to work it out the bottom so they can pull it down and out. Okay? So, they get all the bars in, they've got them laid to the side, Rand gets in, takes a couple minutes to rest, because he's been in a really kind of precarious situation doing all this, takes a second to rest, and as soon as he's ready, he already sees that Petal has found that the walls themselves aren't completely smooth, they're still natural rock, and they find she finds a very an outcropping of the rock that's very strong and sturdy. He comes and checks at it and agrees, and they hook a grappling hook around it, that the rope is attached to, because they didn't know if they'd have something they could tie it off to, and they make sure it's sturdy, and then he throws the rope out. Okay? Down at the bottom, you got to imagine the friends are biting their nails, right? They've been waiting for a sign. What's going on? What's happening? Would this is take? Is this too long? We didn't hear anybody fall. They would have heard that. You know, they would, And some within vision would have seen it. Somebody would have fallen. They would have seen that. So they know they're up there, but when the rope finally comes down, and there's lots of extra rope, so it hits the bottom of the rocks and is laying there, they're all relieved to find they were successful. So it's time to start making their way up the wall. Now, even with a rope, it's going to be challenging, right? Plus, they just paddled for an hour, although they've had about, you know, 20, 30 minutes to rest here. So it took a while to get up there, and then it took a while for them to get the bars out. They have had a chance to rest, and Maeve is going to go first. And the reason that Maeve is going to go first, because if something happens and whatever the outcropping or whatever they've got it hooked to, or the hole's not big enough, they need to know immediately. So Maeve is going second. Plus, worse comes down to it, Maeve is probably the best person to have up there if there is a problem. If while everybody else is climbing up, a bunch of guards come in, Maeve can hold the door much better than any, well, any of the rest of them can hold the door. Hold the door. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, not a slam against Ran or anything. She's just overall more powerful than he is. So Maeve starts making her way up and is relieved to find that the rope gives no no sway. It, it's in there sturdy, and she starts climbing her way up. Now, they've all got experience with this, and this is one spot climbing a rope. Maeve ha does have a bit of an edge, because she spent so many years, or part of her years, on ships with her father, working on boats, climbing ropes and sails and ladders and stuff. She's got that experience. So making her way up the rope, this is not a problem for Maeve. Finally, something she's, in her mind, you think relieved. Finally, something I know how to do. And she starts making her way up. 
One in turn, they start following each other. Maeve does squeeze through a little bit easier than she they, they thought she would. She, well, the hole was a little bit bigger, it seemed. But she was able to slide on in through. And quickly, she has her sword. She goes down and she takes the sword off the un- unconscious guard. Who, while everyone else was climbing up, Petal took some of the additional rope they had and tied the dude up. Don't leave a dude unconscious and untied. You never know when he's going to wake up. So he's tied up now. And he's moved in closer to the bars. Uh, Maeve takes his sword as well as the sword she brought with her. So now she's dual-wielding swords, which she does have the ability to do, although she's not fully ambidextrous. Uh, her offhand is, is still going to be weaker than her regular hand. This is D&D stuff again. So she can use two swords, but she's going to be using the other one with a bit of a negative because she's not hardcore trained in two-wielders. She normally uses one large two-handed sword or one regular sword, but she's, it's still better than nothing. So she's got two swords now because she couldn't bring a shield with her. And everybody else makes it up in there. So after everybody climbs in, remember there are 11 people in here right now, plus the unconscious dude. There's our five heroes, of which Maeve is the size of two or three of them, and six of their men that they brought up with them. Determination is made. Now they see the layout. They see what situation they're in. The determination is made that two of the people they brought with them, two of the crew members, are going to stay here and guard this section keep them an escape route, or, worst case scenario, they're going to flee and let everybody at the bottom know it's time to go. Right? If a whole bunch of guards are coming down to get them and the two uh, crewmen are up there and they're like, oh, well, clearly they've been found. We need to get the hell out of here. They're responsible for throwing that torch out and then making their way down as best they can as well. And also keep an eye on that unconscious dude. If he wakes up, they knock him back out again if they have to, if he starts causing problems. So two guards are going to stay there and cover this exit so they have at least one way out of here. Same rules apply. If they're not back by right before sunup, they are to abandon. They're to get back on that rope, climb back down, and leave with Broda and his people. If the others get captured or whatever, these guys are only staying here for a period of time. Guard this thing for as long as you can, but as soon as you think sunlight's starting to come, get the hell out of here. Go be safe. Stay with Brodus people. Do the best you can. Our heroes, plus the four remaining crew member, gather their weapons and proceed to make their way through the tunnels in towards the keep. The tunnel itself branches several times. And not quite knowing exactly where they're going, uh, they don't split up per se, but they do send one person to go just a short distance in to scope it out. Uh, Most of them seem to lead to other cave entrances. Some of them go up. The paths go up and down. They're not good stairs, but very crappy carved stairs in the rocks of what was probably in natural cave formations. That's what these are, natural tunnels. may have been slightly widened at some point, and where it was a steep slant, they might have cut some jaggedy stairs in there, but it's not real well made. And it doesn't take long for them to find the correct path that leads up and they come to a set of what are better made stairs that kind of go up turn go up turn go up so kind of very square going up right so it's not like a straight stairs ahead of them they're kind of like a stairwell in a building going up and around and around and around and they begin to make their ways make their way up those stairs now kip is leading the party he's uh he's had plenty of time to rest and heal and he is leading the party at this point and sure enough he's doing it for a reason And he finds that reason. He's only partway up the stairs, barely a few feet before he finds the first booby trap. 
He finds that there is a trap built into the stair. He is able to successfully disarm that trap. But that slows progress even more. Because if there's one, could be more. Before they make it to the top of the stairs, he has had to successfully disarm four different traps in this stairwell. Um, but has successfully found each one and successfully disarmed them. At no point were any traps triggered, nor anyone harmed by any of the traps, uh, or, 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 or like alarms gone off or anything of that nature. That they're aware of, of course. Petal did not find any signs of any magical traps. They all appear to be pretty old, the traps he came across. They've been there for a while, and it's specific steps. So the guards, the guard that came down to check this area every so often, uh, very likely knows which step not to step on in these situations. Because it's, it's a pressure plate trap in each one. Each one is stepping on the stairs. It's not a string going across or anything like that. Each one's a pressure plate. So they're able to make it by there. He's like, don't step on this one. They get up to the top of the stairs. Now, at the top of the stairs, they find themselves a door. The door is not locked, but it's pretty sturdy, and it's not trapped. Uh, mostly because the guard just came through it a little while ago. Um, and Maeve kind of moves to the front here and tries to open the door as quietly as she can. Fortunately, it's pretty well kept. Cre- creaks a little bit, but as all doors do, especially when you have to worry about rust from the water air, they are still right by the ocean, um, is able to open it up relatively quietly and get a look outside. And what she sees is the main courtyard across from her. She sees what looks like She's in a hallway, and then there's a window, and she could see the main courtyard of the keep. She opens it a little bit more, and then steps back, and you see Kip's head pop out. And he looks both ways, and he does not see anybody in that hallway. He very quietly kind of sneaks out to get a look, and what he realizes is that the hallway <clears throat> is actually inside the outer wall of the keep, Right? So this wall of the keep, which I said came up that thin bridgeways to get in, comes around and circles the entire keep, except it's more square-like. It's not exactly square, it's jagged. But inside of that, you can go within the walls themselves. There would be stairs and ladders that would take you up on top so you could defend from on top of the wall. There within that wall, and across from them, appears to be an arch open way, not really a window as much as an open arch, that they can see out where they can walk right into the courtyard. Now, Kip can see guards up on the wall at different distances and can only assume that there's probably some above them as well. So they have to go very quietly. No one's reacted to the door opening, so either nobody heard it or they assume it's that guard coming back up opening the door. But no one from the wall is really paying any attention to them. Everyone really appears to be looking outward for threats, not inward. Hmm. So... They don't know exactly where they're going. That's the other problem here. They know that Quintius is somewhere here. And Artis is a little concerned at this moment because her hope was when she got close enough to Quintius that he could appear and guide them to him. Right? He appeared to them out in the town, which is way further than where they are right now. But Quintius has not yet appeared. Which means either he can't because he's too busy fighting off the mage or he can't because the mage has already uh, found a way to control him or take over. So she's very upset and concerned about this and now she's prompted to want to hurry. She's like, we need to get in there. He hasn't appeared to me. 
this is not good stuff. Kip and Rand decide, that they decide as a group that Kip and Rand is going to go take a look first. So Kip kind of goes out the door, Rand goes out, and they go opposite ways up this kind of wall to see what they can see, to find some type of sign that might lead them where they need to be. Now, Rand returns in just a couple of minutes like he's supposed to, but Kip does not. Kip's only supposed to go a distance off, and this thing kind of goes and turns, so you can't just watch him go forever. It's Like I said, it's a, the wall itself is oddly shaped, so you're moving into it, and there's branches. And they're waiting, and Kip hasn't returned. Now it's been four minutes, then five minutes, and now, of course, there's a concern that Kip may have been found. And they're trying to figure out what else they should do, should, should Ran go after Kip, and that's what they're about to do, send Ran out that way, but with Petal along, because she's also very sneaky, when finally, Kip returns. They're relieved to see Kip, but also a little irritated that he was gone so long. Kip gets back into the door and, and motions for Maeve to close it, help cut out their talking so they can whisper a little bit. So Maeve closes the door as quietly as she can. They kind of huddle up a little bit. And he explains that while going that direction he was going, he ran into one of the servants of the keep. Man out doing some business, whether he was you know taking a bucket, getting some water, he was doing something for the keep. Unimportant. Came across this man accidentally, and the man saw him. Kip had very little time to make a decision. So Kip punched him in the face. He fell backwards, and Kip very quickly got on top of him and basically put his hand over his mouth so he couldn't scream out. The man not, was an older gentleman, not very strong. Clearly just, he was a servant, he was not a warrior in any way. It did not take long for Kip to be able to basically overpower this man and tie him up. And he found a small storage room that the man was coming out of, pulled the man inside of it. The man was not unconscious, though he was slightly dazed and very concerned. Kip did what Kip does. He put a knife against his throat, says, I'm going to ask you one question, and if I don't like the answer you give me, I'm going to slit your throat and leave you in this closet. Because, you know, Kip says things like that. Ran has a harder time pulling those type of threats off, because he doesn't genuinely mean it. Kip does not have these problems. The man was more than happy to give the information that Kip wanted in order to save his own life. He obviously was not there by choice uh, and was not loyal to Redbeard in any way. And sure enough, Kip got some information. It turns out that the mage lives beneath the main uh, room. So if you go into the main room of the keep, throne room, if you will, which also very often acts as a throne room slash banquet hall, yada yada. There are several doors at the back. One leads to the king's chamber, or the captain's chamber in this situation. One leads to a kitchen. Uh, and then the third one actually leads to a set of stairs going down. And down those stairs uh, is where the mage is kept, along with um, his laboratory, or laboratory, depending on who you are and how you pronounce that word. At that point, Kip hit him over the head, knocked him unconscious, gagged him, and left him tied in that closet. You know, for now. Someone will find him, I'm sure. Kip not as concerned with that part. Ran, always a little concerned. That Kip is not concerned with that part. Ran's just not that way. Hey, Buffy. My kitty's here. With this information, they now know which direction they have to go. They have to make it across this courtyard. Or around the courtyard. Kip believes he said he's found a path. He took a minute to check it out. And as long as they're careful and their luck holds, they should be able to make it uh, to the main hall uh, relatively easy and unseen. Because again, it's late, late early in the morning at this point. And again, 
All of the guards are watching for threats. Hello there. Are watching for threats external, not for threats internal. Hi, little Buffy. Buffy wants some treats. You gotta give me just a minute. We're almost done. Give me just a minute. So they proceed to follow Kip the direction he he found, and they follow him through this hallway tunnel. And a couple times they're having to stop quietly and hide against the wall, very concerned because they see guards moving or something, and you know they have to be careful not to give themselves away. But their luck holds, and they manage to make it to the main hall unmolested. The main hall is a little bit more of a challenge. When they get into the main hall, they can see that there are several people in there cleaning the room. They appear to be servants again of some kind, but they don't see any form of guards. The room is too large. There's no way they could just go rushing across it and grab these people and tie them up uh, before those people would be able to yell out an alarm. So there is some concern there. So what they try to do is instead to go around the room, because there are other halls and stuff. They try to go in. There are several other doors leading into this room from hallways and kitchens and so on. Um, so they try to get go through without getting lost in the maze. Um, and are successful. They're very successful in this. Everything is going very well. And they manage to make it further in where they're coming in from the hall from a side door instead of at the very entrance where they were to begin with. Now at the side door looking in, they can still see that the people are cleaning, but they're not on the same area of the room that they're in. And there are a lot of big, heavy tapestries and tarps that are hanging you know, in, as decorations. There should be enough room for them to squeeze behind them. If they're careful, they might be able to sneak through this room without being seen or heard, at least in the position that they're at now. Uh, the biggest concern in this situation, of course, is Maeve. She's just big. Maeve's, Maeve can be sneaky, she can be quiet, and she's not wearing any of her plate mail. So she, she, But she's still large, and something small moving in the corner of your eye versus something really big moving in the corner of your eye is going to get your attention, right? So they're having to be very careful. And Maeve goes second. Kip goes first. The reason Maeve goes second is in case Kip runs into a problem. And number two, if they're going to get caught, they'd rather get caught quickly, if that makes sense. If Maeve's going to be the one seen, at least everybody's in a hallway. They could run back to where they first came into the keep. There's a chance for escape. They don't know exactly what's ahead of them. But luckily, Maeve rolls successfully. And her and Kip are able to make it around the room, and Kip's able to open the door that leads down to the mage's, tower, or mage's area based on the information he got from his, the original servant he found. Maeve manages to make it through that same door. They leave it open just enough the rest can squeeze through, and one at a time, everybody starts making their way around this hall through. You understand, the servants, it's late. They probably don't want to be up. They probably aren't allowed to sleep very much. And they're just over scrubbing floors and wiping down tables. No one notices them, but they're not really looking, nor do they care. They're just trying to get their stuff done so they can go to sleep. Everyone makes it into the door that leads down. Sure enough, once you go through that door, there's just three to five feet and then stairs that kind of go down on an angle. They close the door behind them, and they see that this side of the door has the ability to lock the door uh, by putting a piece of wood across it. There's wood leaning against the wall. Now, they chat for just a quick second, make the determination they're going to go ahead and bar the door. If they're coming back up, they can move the bar pretty easily, but on the off chance they do trigger some type of alarm or the mage manages to call for help, if, they, if the mage is even down in there right now, it may help slow down uh, anybody coming from behind them. So they do bar the door as they begin making their way downstairs. Again, Kip takes the lead, moving very carefully, cautiously, prepared for anything, checking for traps, although he finds none. 
Petal doesn't see anything that would imply a magical uh, trap, but she ref she is refraining from casting any further spells, not knowing what she might need if she does have to face the mage. And secondly, casting spells of detect magic in itself could inadvertently trigger a magical trap <laughs> or, or some type of magical alarm. Magic going off could do that. So they're kind of in a, a catch-22 there. By not doing anything, they may set off a magic alarm, but if she tries to do something, she might set off a magic alarm. Err on the side of caution. They go ahead and they start making their way down. Kip finds no traps, nor does uh, he set off or anyone set off anything else. The bottom of the stairs, it does curve a couple times. They come across a very wide door. And I say wide, because it's just as wide as it is tall. Although the top of it is kind of angled, or kind of curved, right? Or rounded, I guess, is the word I should use. It's a very wide door. And the door at the top of the stairs, and the stairs themselves, maybe, you know, a little wide, but, I mean, the door was, but not much. This is a very wide door, uh, which would make it easy to move large things in and out of it. Obviously, that's how large doors work. I don't know why I explained that. My bad. Um, but, it's at this point that uh, Kip... And pedal, very carefully move up towards the door, placing their ears against it as best they can, listening for sound. Everyone else holds their breath and waits. After a moment, Kip and Pedal both confirm that they can hear a muffled voice on the other side of the door. The door is thick. They can't make out the words. But they both believe that it is Selenian. The mage. He's an elf, remember. An elven mage. Elves have a certain voice type, a way, a way of speech. Who he's talking to, they don't hear anyone else. Uh, Petal doesn't think he's casting a spell. It doesn't sound like he's spell casting. He doesn't have the rhythm of that, the rate of the way he's speaking. It's almost like he's speaking to someone, but they can't hear who's speaking back. Now, hearing that, fear races through artists. Because what if somehow he's taken control of Quintius? They determine that they don't have any time to wait. They must take action now. Preparing their weapons and their friends, the guards, with them. Maeve makes movement to open the door. Sure enough, the door is not locked. And she thrusts the door open. Because Maeve's going first in this situation. And she opens the door and steps in, her friends behind her. And they all stop suddenly. Because standing before them is the mage, a large man with a very red long beard and about 12 to 13 well-armed guards. And Selenian just smiles. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight. So... They bust into this room, but it appears that they were expected. Now, we'll be continuing this story specifically in two weeks. As I mentioned on episode 100, we will be telling this tale um, and what happens next. We'll go right from where we left off. I don't want you to think I'm going to jump to another group or something and leave you hanging on this for a month or two. Not like that. We will be continuing at this spot next week. 
Um, next, we actually went a little bit longer today than I expected. But next week we have some, uh, I would expect probably at least two full hours. Because I have several different things I w would like to get accomplished during episode 100. Uh, and I hope that some of you might find time in your busy schedules to come by and hear uh, my 100th episode of Merge Worlds. We are well over... <laughs> We are well over 250 to 300 hours worth of story at this point, which is mind-boggling to me. Uh, a, that I could had that much crap to tell everybody, and B, you all stuck around that long. So thank you to everyone who's been following along with Merge Worlds and giving me an opportunity uh, to share this tale, which continue to grow in my mind daily. I think about Merge Worlds all the time, writing in my head. Um... But next week, we'll be continuing right from here uh, with what could be the exciting conclusion for their search for Quintius, for good or bad, mind you. Um, but we are definitely going to have some resolutions next week, uh, as well as the beginnings of something else. Uh, for them, with these kids, it's the same story group, I'm not trying to bring in new characters at this point. <laughs> but uh, thank you all very much for coming and listening to my story today. I greatly appreciate you. If you had a good time, whether you're listening to this today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, it would be awesome if you're on YouTube, uh, being sure to click that like button and subscribing to the channel so you can come back and hang out with us all the time. And if you're one of the wonderful people out there who's listening to this as an audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Google Podcasts, any of that stuff. Uh, thank you for finding me over there as well. It would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving us the five stars and the likes and uh, review and all that kind of stuff uh, and help me get the words of Merge Worlds out there. Tell a friend. You play D&D? You play D&D with other people? Because you can play D&D by yourself, but it's more fun with other people. Uh, tell your friends. Tell your DM. <laughs> I'd love to hear the thoughts and share my story with as many people as possible. But that is where I'm going to call it for today. Again, thank you all very much for coming. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. And I hope you'll come back to hear a little bit more Merge Worlds in just a couple of weeks. All right? Thank you all for coming. You folks have yourselves a great day. Mm -hmm.